Genealogy is... Is like um, studying the weather through a space. Genealogy is... Um, I don't really know, but um, is my guess homework. Uh, um, family history is what your family members are and uh, and what they came from. My mom, my dad is when you learn about your ancestors and um, how they lived and where they lived. My great great grandma and grandpa, my great 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 grandma and grandpa. It's stories of like your mom and dad or like your grandma and grandpa's. Great 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 uncle, and um, he was from Norway. My grandpa was a fireman. My other one that lived in Ohio. My grandma comes from Germany, and we call her Oma because that's how you say grandma in German. My grandma cooks very well in Ohio. My grandma and grandpa sailed across the sea to see the Statue of Liberty, and my great-grandpa kissed the ground. There's more to come. You know, the kids had trouble defining the term genealogy, didn't they? But they understood a little bit about what family history meant. To a lot of people, genealogy is just a bunch of names of dead people that don't matter anymore. But if we think of genealogy in terms of family stories, that might make it more interesting and intriguing. Maybe you're here today and you care less about genealogy. I know in my household, that's how it is. <laughs> but, uh, you know, it's just a list of dead people, but... I bet if you asked me, if I asked you to tell you stories of your parents, your grandparents, and your great-grandparents you knew growing up, that would be a different tale. So how many of you heard that you've rela you're related to someone famous? Okay. When I was introduced to genealogy around age six, I was told that I was related to a couple famous people. One was Lucy Webb Ware. She was the first lady married to President Rutherford B. Hayes. Historians gave her the name Lemonade Lucy due to her staunch support of the temperance movement. In fact, her husband, the president, banned alcohol from the White House as she served lemonade. The other famous person I was told I was related to was Sam Houston, an American general who played an important role in the Texas Revolution and was the first governor of Texas. Now, I have disproved, disproved that I'm related to those people directly. Uh, but who I have proven to be related to is my great-grandfather, who was known under three different names, with three different wives, in three different states, <laughs> and very possibly turned state's evidence after getting caught up in a conspiracy to commit arson case with his daughter. That's family history story right there. That's why I like genealogy. Genealogy is not just names of people in your family who are dead. It is people and the stories that made up their lives. So I read somewhere this past week that reading Genesis 36 is like walking through the gravestones of Esau's family. You know, you can find out a lot about your family by walking through, their, walking your past through their tombstones. 
You may find that they served in the military and served in wartime, like my grandfather, my great-grandfather. Maybe in the next slide, I don't know. Maybe not. There they are. You may find that, they, that your ancestors had some kind of spirituality during their lives, like my second great-grandparents here, whose tombstone says to die is gain. A little hard to see. Or my great-grandparents here, whose gravestone depicts the Holy Bible on it and says together forever, which spoke to their hope of being together beyond the grave. You may also find that your ancestors were truly loved, like my grandmother here, whose tombstone says, in memory of a loving mother and friend. I wish I could go back in time and listen to the stories of their lives, the good and the bad. So why is this chapter of names important? And what can we find out about Esau and his family as we walk through his tombstones in chapter 36, specifically verses 9 to 19? First, this chapter is important because Moses was writing to people who were going to be living very near the Edomites, Esau's descendants. The Lord was going to be giving them specific instructions about these close relatives, so they needed to know who they were. Second, this chapter is important because the people of Israel needed to realize, as we do today, that worldly blessing does not translate into spiritual blessing. It is what we do and how we live with those blessings that count. If we are living without the spiritual blessing of the salvation of Jesus Christ and outside the family of God, it doesn't matter what worldly blessings we have. Because once our tombstones have been erected, all of it is dust. Which brings us to our big idea this morning. Which is if we succeed by worldly standards but fail by God's standards, we fail where it really matters. You know, we'll see that Esau had worldly wealth. He had lots of children and grandchildren, and his descendants became powerful chiefs of clans and tribes and ruled in a land all their own. But Esau and his descendants failed by godly standards, and in doing so, failed where it really mattered. Before we dive in, let's pray. Let's bow our heads for a word of prayer. Dear Heavenly Father, we stand in all of you this morning, and we praise you for your word. We thank you for the opportunities we have to open it and study it, especially together. I pray that your Holy Spirit will speak to each heart and mind that hears your word and that a transformation will take place in their lives. And we will give you all the glory and honor and praise. In Jesus' name, amen. So our first point this morning is lineage. That's found in Genesis 36, verses 9 to 14. You can follow along as I read. This is what God's word says. This is the account of the family line of Esau, the father of the Edomites in the hill country of Seir. And these are the names of Esau's sons. Eliphaz, the son of Esau's wife, Adah, and Reuel, the son of Esau's wife, Bozmath. The sons of Eliphaz, Teman, Omar, Zepho, Gatam, and Kanaz. Esau's son Eliphaz also had a concubine named Timnah, who bore him Amalek. These were grandsons of Esau's wife Adah. The sons of Reuel, Nahath, Zerah, Shammah, Mizah. These were grandsons of Esau's wife Bozmath. The sons of Esau's wife Aholabamah, 
daughter of Anah and granddaughter of Zazon, whom she bore to Esau, Yeush, Yalam, and Korak. This morning as we walk through Esau's family cemetery, we're going to hear his family stories. And we're going to hear important truths that we can learn from them. The section starting with verse 9 that I just read starts the same way as how Pastor Stewart started last week with verse 1. The author repeats, this is the account of Esau. But he adds that now he is the father of the Edomites. This kind of repetition was very unusual in the biblical Toledots. It is possible that once the family moved to Seir and either settled or conquered the land there, a new record was kept with a new starting point. The fact that he is now the father of a group of people called the Edomites compares him with Jacob, who, who was also known as Israel, and would later become the father of a group of people called the Israelites. If you remember in Genesis 25, we saw that Rebekah was pregnant with twins, Esau and Jacob, and they were fighting inside her womb. So she inquired of the Lord, and he told her that there were two nations inside of her. This chapter is the fulfillment of that promise. God promised Rebekah that two nations would come from her womb. We also see that Esau and the Edomites are now dwelling securely in the hill country of Seir, implying that the Lord had established his descendants in that land. Last week, we were introduced to Esau's three wives, Adah, Bozmath, and Aholabama. And there is some repetition here. We see them again. I wanted to remind you what they meant. Adah means adorned one or ornament. Bozmath means the perfumed one or spice. And Aholabama means tent of the high place, giving the connotation of tall and stately. From their names, we can learn that Esau had a very beautiful family by worldly standards. If you remember back then, names weren't just given because they sounded nice. They were given because they meant something. Think about Jacob, which means heel grabber and deceiver. We notice that each of their names focuses on some outward feature of beauty or sensuality because that is what they valued. But we've also been introduced to Esau's sons born to him by these three wives. Adah bore one son called Eliphaz. Bozmath bore one son, Reuel. And then later in verse 14, we read that Aholabama bore Esau three sons, Yeush, Yalam, and Korak. And again, I want to remind you what these names mean. Again, Eliphaz means my God is fine gold. Reuel means friend of God. Yeush means assembler. Yalam means to conceal. And Korak means bald. Now, as we look at this list, I want to highlight one. I want to highlight Eliphaz. It is believed that he is the same person who was one of the friends of Job. One of Eliphaz's sons is called Teman. And in the book of Job, Eliphaz is identified as a Temanite. Also, scholars believe that Job was written during the time of the patriarchs. And that it was the first book of the Bible written chronologically. So it's possible that Job was living in or near the land of Seir. He was living with the Edomites, and that's where the events of his book took place. As we go back to the names of Esau's sons, we again see that they aren't focused on spiritual, but the worldly. Now, there are two names out of the 81 names in this chapter that possibly show a belief in the one true God. 
We see that Eliphaz was my God, is fine gold. And Reuel is a friend of God. But it's also more probable that they were connected to idolatry and the worship of false gods. Something else we can learn by walking through Esau's family cemetery is that there's no mention of barrenness. If you remember the wives of the patriarchs, Sarah, Rebecca, and Rachel, all struggled with being barren. They had to rely on God to open their wombs so they could have children. And God opened their wombs in his timing and according to his plan and purpose. The patriarchs were, patriarchs were all promised that they would have offspring like the stars in the sky and the sand on the seashore. But it wasn't going to happen in their timing. It was going to happen in a miraculous spiritual way as God allowed it. But we noticed that Esau and his wives did not have the same problem. Esau was wealthy in sons, and for all intents and purposes, he was able to have children all on his own without the help of God. Next, we, we continue to see Esau's worldly wealth increase as God blesses him with grandchildren. How many of you here have grandchildren this morning? Nice, you're wealthy. The sons of Eliphaz were Teman, which means south, Omar, which means eloquent, Zepho, which means clean or pure, Gatam, which means thin, and the meaning of Kadaz is unknown. Next, we come to the second name I want to highlight this morning. In verse 12, we see that Eliphaz has a concubine named Temna, and she bore him a son called Amalek. Amalek means to lap or lick. Amalek would have been a name that the first hearers would have recognized. He was probably the ancestor of the Amalekites, who were bitter enemies of the Israelites. In fact, in Deuteronomy 25, 17 and 19, we see these words. Remember what the Amalekites did to you along the way when you came out of Egypt. When you were weary and worn out, they met you on your journey and, and attacked all who were lagging behind. They had no fear of God. When the Lord your God gives you rest from all your enemies around you, in the land he has given you to possess as an inheritance, you shall blot out the name of Amalek from under heaven. Do not forget. God commanded the Israelites to blot out the name of Amalek from under heaven because they had no fear of the Lord. It is important that we have a righteous, reverent fear or awe of the Lord so he doesn't blot us out. We only need to look at ourselves and around us to see what God has done and is doing in the world, in our church, and in our lives. God is the almighty, all-knowing, and all-seeing one true God. And he is the only one worthy of our awe and our fear. So this prompts me to ask a question this morning. Do you have a righteous, reverent fear or awe of the Lord in your life? If not, this first next step may be for you. My next step is to cultivate a righteous, reverent fear of the Lord in my life. Next, we see the sons of Reuel, who are the grandsons of Esau. Mahath, which means clear or pure. Zerah, which means dawning or shining. Shema, which means to hear. And Mizah, which is also unknown. 
And lastly, you notice that the sons of Esau and Aholabama are mentioned. But it doesn't seem that they had any offspring, these sons. But they are important as we move to the next point. And the second point this morning is legacy. Found in Genesis 36, verses 15 and 19. You can follow along as I read those words. This is what God's word says. These were the chiefs among Esau's descendants. The sons of Eliphaz, the firstborn of Esau. Chiefs, Teman, Omar, Zepho, Kanaz, Korak, Gatam, and Amalek. These were the chiefs descended from Eliphaz and Edom. These were the grandsons of Adah. The sons of Esau's son, Reuel, chiefs Nahath, Zerah, Shammah, and Mizah. These were the chiefs descended from Reuel and Edom. These were the grandsons of Esau's wife, Bozmath. The sons of Esau's wife, Aholabama, chiefs Yeush, Yalam, and Korak. These were the chiefs descended from Esau's wife, Aholabama, daughter of Anah. These were the sons of Esau, that is Edom, and these were their chiefs. As we continue walking through Esau's family cemetery, his family stories again come alive. As I read these verses, you may have seen some redundancy. And it is true. That doesn't mean there's nothing to learn from this section. First, let me point out a progression that we see in the list so far. Pastor Stewart last week read verses 1 through 8. And we saw Esau, who was Edom, and his wives and children. In verses 9 to 14, we saw Esau, the ancestor of the Edomites, with his wives, children, and grandchildren. The significance is that Esau's rich family history is growing. Verses 15 to 19 again shows the progression from a family to a nation with Esau's descendants as the rulers of that nation. This is important because it continues to fulfill God's promise to Abraham to make him a father of many nations that we saw in Genesis 17.4. By including Esau's descendants and their ascendancy as rulers implies that Edom's rise was the consequence of God's blessing and that his blessing reached outside the line of Jacob. And the proliferation of Edomite tribes fulfills God's intention to bless all the peoples of the earth, as we saw in Genesis 12:3, which would happen by bringing salvation to the nations. So we notice that the children and grandchildren of Esau are now chiefs. Some translations say dukes. The word for duke comes from a Latin word meaning captain or leader. The Hebrew word has the same significance and is a term for a thousand. The dukes or chiefs were probably leaders or captains over a company of 1,000 men. It is important that we see these names as chiefs and clans, not just sons and grandsons. But there are a few differences in the list from verse 19 to 14 and verses 15 to 19. First, the order of grandsons, Gatam and Kanaz, are rearranged. The reason for this change is seemingly unknown or just didn't really matter. In verse 16, we see an addition of a name, Korak. 
who is represented as a son of Eliphaz. Korak is also the name of one of the sons of Aholabama. Again, what is important here is that Korak is the name of a clan and not just a son or grandson. The commentators say it could mean that there was a portion of the clan of Korak that split. One portion stayed affiliated with Aholabama and the other portion affiliated themselves with the clans connected to Eliphaz. These were first and foremost political alliances. These were not spiritually minded people. They were secular and political, political entities looking for prestige, power, and possession, position. Next thing that we could glean as important from this list of clans and political alliances is that there's 12 tribes. They are represented by the nine grandsons and the three sons of Esau born to him by Aholabama. This number is reached by counting the split clan of Korak as one and then omitting Amalek, who is disqualified because he is the son of a concubine. What this means is that Ishmael, Esau, and Jacob all became the father of 12 tribes. 12 being the number of completeness, showing us that God's promises to the patriarchs are being completely fulfilled. God doesn't ever forget his promises, even when it includes non-covenant peoples. The last thing we can learn from this section of walking through Esau's family cemetery is the contrast between Esau's and Jacob's families. Jacob is living in an alien land, a land that is not his own. He has no clans, no full tribes, and no lands to govern. Esau has an ever-growing family who have become chiefs and are ruling in their own land. Esau is leaving his legacy much faster than Jacob. It would be another 400 plus years until the tribes and nation of Israel would come into their promised land and finally see the promises of God fulfilled in their family. Delich notes poignantly that secular greatness in general grows up far more rapidly than spiritual greatness. The promised spiritual blessings demand patience and faith and emphasizes that waiting while others prosper is a test of faithfulness and perseverance. God will give the promised blessings to Jacob's seed, but only after a long refining and proving of their faith. And that prompts me to ask and for us to think about a couple questions. Do you find yourself at this moment waiting for God's blessings as others around you have seemingly already received theirs? Do you feel like you're going through God's refining fire at this very moment? As you ponder these questions, maybe one of these next steps is for you. My next step is to ask God to give me patience and faithfulness as I wait on his timing and perfect plan to receive his blessings. And second, my next step is to ask God for perseverance as he refines me in his fire, proving my faith. My conclusion comes from a series on Bible.org written by Stephen J. Cole. 
On the Shetland Islands off the northern coast of Scotland, a man spent five years and a lifetime of savings building a 62-foot steel yacht that weighed 126 tons. On the day of the launch, he invited a local band to play, and the whole town turned out to help him celebrate. He planned a voyage around the world as soon as the boat was launched. The band played, the bottle of champagne was smashed across the bow, and the ship was lowered into the water. But it sank to the bottom of the harbor. What good is a beautiful boat that doesn't float? The man wasted five years and a lot of money building a, useful, a useless thing, a boat that did not float. What good is a successful life that ends either in 25 years or 85 years if the person is not ready for eternity? What does it profit a man to gain the whole world and forfeit his soul? Today's tour through Esau's cemetery is over, and I hope it's made you think about your life and what you're living for. Because while we still live, we all have a choice. We can join Jacob and his descendants in waiting patiently for God to fulfill his covenant promises to us as we labor for his coming kingdom. Or we can look over to Esau, prospering in the world, and join him in the pursuit of secular success. If we succeed by worldly standards but fail with God, we have failed where it really matters. Whether we fail or succeed by worldly standards, if we succeed with God, we will have true and lasting success. As the ushers prepare to collect the tithes and offerings, and as Gene and Roxy come to lead us in a final song, let's close our study of God's word in prayer. Let's bow our heads. Dear Heavenly Father, as we contemplate you and your mighty deeds that you've done in your word and are still doing today, I pray that we would stand in all of you, that we would cultivate a righteous, reverent fear of you in our lives. You are the Lord God Almighty. Help us to be patient and faithful as we wait on your blessings in our lives according to your perfect plan for each one of us. And daily give us perseverance as you continue to refine us in your fire, proving our faith. In Jesus' name, amen.